Hebrews chapter 12 is where we are this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. We are nearing the end. Uh, You know, I'm going to sprinkle through the message this morning a few uh, little anecdotes and things from our trip to Africa. And so the illustrations that you'll hear today are are stories, a lot of them from things that we experienced while we were there. One of the things, or people rather, although sometimes she was pretty intimidating like a, like a machine, was a woman named Nomza. Nomza uh, is a go-go, and a go-go is sort of like a, a grandmother that belongs to all the kids at a care point. And so Nomza was the head go-go. She was the one in charge. And so uh, she had the respect and honor and reverence of every child that was there. And I'm only I can only guess how she got all that uh, honor and respect from those kids. Cultural etiquette, whenever we arrived at the care point every day, not just the first day, but every day, is that you're swarmed with little children. And again, you'll hear these things and see pictures and videos and things this afternoon if you come back at four. But uh, I wanted to say about the Go-Go's is that when we would arrive, you'd be swarmed with children when you got off the bus. But etiquette was that you had to ignore them. Uh, the first person that you talked to, or the, the first people you talked to were the go-go's. You had to sort of ignore the kids and talk out of respect to the hosts first. And so they told us this, and I, I've been before, but I remember this from last time. And so we kind of ignore the children. I know that sounds heartless, but it's, it's, it's respect in their culture. And so we go to the go-go's first. And Nomza is, again, the first one that kind of would greet us oftentimes. And she would stand there, and she's a very stern-looking woman. She looks like this. And she's... She's an imposing figure. She's, she's not a small woman. She's, a, she's kind of got a lot of, you know, gravitas to her, right? And so she would kind of look scowling at you. And so you must approach her the right way with honor and respect. And so we had to adopt the cultural etiquette to do that. And so wanting to honor and respect her, you'd go up and, and you'd want to say what we do in our culture. You'd shake her hand and say, thank you so much for having us. We're so glad that you, to be here and thank you for whatever. But that isn't the way to honor them in their culture. Uh, her way of honoring her was to speak her language. And I'm not saying that figuratively. I'm saying that literally, which poses a problem for a guy like me that doesn't speak Siswati in African tongue, right? So what do you think I did? Uh, I can't help it. You get off and you can't, you go into default mode, which is, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And you go up to her and you say these things and she's like, like this. And you're like, man, I'm really feeling the love. I'm happy to be here. Um, And so the next day I was like, I got to remember this time. I've got to. And so, I mean, I had it on my phone. I have notes. If you know me, this makes perfect sense. I have notes. I'm studying their language. I'm looking at the words to say. And so the next time instead, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to win her affection right? I'm going to approach her the right way. And so, I mean, I'm not kidding. I can show you the, I've got the words written down. And so I walked up to her the next time and I said, Nomza. And I said, I said, Saubona. And she goes, yeah, bo. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, bo. And I said, Unjani. And she said, Nia Pila Unjani, like that. And I said, Nia Pila. And she had a big smile on her face and she just hugged me and we were good. <laughs> But what I said was, hello, and she said, yeah, like, hello. And then I said, "Um, how are you? And she said, I'm fine. How are you? I said, I'm fine. And so because I approached her the right way, and am I lying, you guys? You had to approach them the way that they sort of expect to be approached. That was etiquette there, especially for her. And so while I wanted to bring American respect, that wasn't the right way to honor her. I got this. But when I approached her the way that on her terms she would have me come, she smiled and even bowed. You see, we must approach God with reverence on his terms, not ours. 
This is the way that God calls us. He calls us on his terms, and we can put on, and we can do what we think is the right, we can clean up our act, but that's not the way that God calls us to approach. In fact, if you're here today thinking, man, I really got to get my life together before I can come to church, that's not the way that God calls us to approach him. It's not. The way that God calls us to approach him is that there's only one way that sinful man can approach a holy God, and it's not through our morality. It's through the work of Jesus. That's the only way that we can approach a holy God. This passage we're looking at this morning is the 11 or 12 and a half chapter climax of the book of Hebrews. It's been building up to this point, and we've been walking through Hebrews from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to this point, if you haven't been with us. We're at the culmination of this moment. And so, yeah, there's another chapter. There's chapter 13. But chapter 13 is like an epilogue. It sort of trails off the way that often Paul's letters do when he kind of says some closing exhortations. But this is the meaty finish of the book of Hebrews. What we've seen in this book so far are warnings after warnings after warnings. And it culminates in this warning of one day your life on earth will end and you will face the judge. One day life's going to end, and you're going to face the judge. And this is just peering through the eyes of the author of Hebrews. We'll face the judge, and what will be your defense? When you, a sinner, inevitably have to approach the judge, who, by the way, always passes down perfect judgment, justice. And he's not a corrupt judge that pardons the evildoer. He's a judge that gets the sentence right every time. And for us, unless God does something miraculous, that's bad news. But he did. And he has. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. And that fire consumes sin and sinners. But he's also a gracious God who pours out his favor on us. Moses was a guy who knew God as a consuming fire. And so what we're going to see in our passage is that the author is going to call back to a time in their history through Moses that God showed himself as such. And we're going to make some observations as we go. Okay? Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. Let's look at it. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses said, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us... Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This passage 
is the applicational response of the prior passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that Esau and his life ran out of time to repent. And I'm not going to revisit that for the sake of time. But the message here is that one day, time will run out in this life for everyone in this room. And we must understand that one day, we too will meet our judge. There are several incidents in the Old Testament in which God's wrath and judgment and holiness or power are displayed by fire from heaven. We see this as an example in Aaron's sons who offered strange fire and they received a fiery fury from God. Elijah and Baal's prophets, which is a huge example of consuming fire sent down from heaven. Isaiah even references God's judgment on Assyria saying that he is a consuming fire. And then here in the book of Hebrews, The author refers to God as a consuming fire. What does that mean? It means exactly what it says it means. He is a fire that utterly destroys. A fire that utterly destroys. And you know, we don't tend to gravitate to this sort of language when talking about God, do we? You're like, well, the old-timey preachers when I was a kid sure did, right? But we don't. We, We tend to gravitate more toward who is God? He is love. The Bible says that. We should say that. Who is God? He is gracious. He is merciful. He is steadfast in his affection toward us. All true. But we must not forget, God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. And we tend to gravitate away from this language. We tend to focus more on his love and his mercy. But we even sometimes make the mistake of saying that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. They're not. This is the New Testament. He's a consuming fire. And so the question then is, how can a loving and merciful God also be a consuming fire that utterly destroys sin and sinners? The author of Hebrews says earlier in chapter 10 that if one rejects the only means of salvation through Jesus, there is no salvation to look forward to, but, he says in chapter 10, 27 and 31, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 31 of chapter 10 then says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a heck of a juxtaposition, is it not? The grace and mercy, and yet also he is at the same time a consuming fire. You know why? Because God is holy. And as I said a moment ago, he is just. And he will by no means pardon sin. It must be paid for. Obviously, we're going to see how the gospel remedies this problem. But he must punish sin if he is to remain a God of justice. So how can, a God, how can God be a consuming fire that utterly destroys and also a loving and merciful God that forgives? It is the answer to the question that is the gospel. The, the motif that we see in our passage this morning is that of approaching a mountain. These mountains, Sinai is one example and Zion is another one. They represent the dwelling place of God. Literally speaking, when it comes to Sinai, God was there on that mountain. And so the motif that I'm going to use as I'm walking through this passage this morning is that you and I are also ones that approach the mountain of God. We approach God's presence and it's bad news if we come on our own merit. It is good news if we come under the merit of another, Jesus so as we approach the mountain, I want you to see the, uh, the comparison or the contrast here. In verse 18, it says, you have not come. You see, you have not come to what may be touched. It's a mountain he's speaking of. And then in verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. You see the comparison, right? You're not like the Old Testament people. You are like this new covenant group. And so the first thing, as far as the point that we're going to have, we're going to have two main ideas to look at here. The first thing is that there's an approach of a mountain of consuming fire of Sinai. 
Sinai. That's number one. The consuming fire of Sinai. Again, we're going to see a contrast here. Number one is the consuming fire of Sinai, back in the Old Testament with Moses. And again, it's not specifically stated, but Mount Sinai is clearly in view here. The mountain that Moses ascended to commune with God and receive the Ten Commandments and the law. Look at the description here in verses 18 through 20, and then I'm going to show you just really quickly through some Old Testament passages why we see that this is exactly what he's describing. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to, guess who? Hebrews, that's right. This is their Bible, the Old Testament. So listen to this description. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire. Listen to these descriptions. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. A couple of verses that are referenced here. These descriptions are clearly from Old Testament passages. I'm going to read them very quickly. Exodus 19:18 says, "Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly." Does that sound familiar? We just kind of read that, right? Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're begging. Don't let us even hear that, that voice. It's terrifying. It's, it's too much for us. Exodus 19, 12 says, And you shall set limits for the people all around you, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. The very next verse of that passage talks about animals. Not even animals can go near. God warned Israel at Sinai not to go up the mountain or even to touch it lest they die. Why? Because the appearance of God's holiness in contrast to unholy and sinful man is not a recipe for peace. It is a recipe for conflict. That's why the wages of sin is what? Death. Because the formula, this mixture of sin and holiness, they cannot coexist. And so that's why Adam and Eve, and even, were, Adam and Eve were even cast out of the garden because those two things do not jive. And in the Old Covenant, there was only terror and destruction at the thought of approaching a holy God. And that's what makes verse 22 so amazing. Because what the author is saying is, but you have come to a different place. Let that just fall over you for a moment, will you? You haven't come to a place of terror. You've come to a different place, a different mountain, one that you may approach. We need not approach God in the terror of Sinai but the mercy of Zion. Jesus is the answer, and we're going to see that in just a moment. But the second thing I want you to see is not the consuming fire of Zion, but the saving favor, or I'm sorry, the consuming fire of Sinai, but the saving favor of Zion. This is the mountain that the author of Hebrews is calling these Christians to approach. He says, but you have come. Notice, by the way, it's past tense. And you think, he's talking to Christians. They have come. Well, he's not talking about literally. He's, he's sort of this already and not yet uh, mentality that already we approach God. Haven't we all approached God? Haven't we all approached God? Yes, we have. And if we are near to him it, through faith in Christ, we have approached him. And yet, have you ever been in heaven? No, 
right? And so there's an already not yet, is that we already are near to God, and yet not yet are we completely coming to fruition in this near relationship where we are with him eternally. Verse 22 touches on this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, he's speaking already and not yet. The heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Literally speaking, Mount Zion was an earthly place. It was the place where the temple was in the city of Jerusalem. It represented the dwelling place of God among his people. It was, simply put, the epicenter of their worship. But in view here is something more than a landmass in the Middle East. He uses the words, the heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, just look at the contrast in the description of verses 18 through 20 and verses 22 through 24. Will you just look down real quick? Just real quick, skim the contrast of those two sections there. Terror, fire, horror, don't touch, smoke and lightning and thunder versus the festal gathering of angels. All the righteous made perfect, the presence of God and beauty, a mediator even. Those are very, two very, very different concepts. In verse 22, look at the second part. It says, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all the spirit of the righteous made perfect that word festal it simply means festival what kind of an angel gathering is it it's a party he says you've come to a party place uh, party city is where you are That's, that is the heavenly Jerusalem it is a place of rejoicing where angels are having a festival of celebration literally speaking it says in verse uh, 23 and to the assembly of the firstborn literally this is the word for church the church of the firstborn is this place firstborn by the way is plural there meaning that all Christians are there all Christians, when it says firstborn, it's like, well, is, does that mean there's just one of us? No, it's, it's a plural term, meaning that we all have the same rights of the firstborn in God's family. Come on, man. Who is the firstborn? Jesus. In him, all things will be preeminent, Colossians 1. And you are co-heirs with him if you are in Jesus. You're the firstborn. We all are the firstborn, given amazing privileges as part of his family. It then says, you've come to God, verse 23, the second part. God, the judge, it says. Now remember what I said a moment ago. One day we will face the judge. And that is a word that is a problem for the imperfect. Because God is a God of justice and he will always get the sentence right. A problem for us, right? But that's what makes the last part just so stunning. It says, to the firstborn in heaven, God the judge and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He's talking about Christians made perfect. How can we dwell with God eternally? Because we are made perfect. Can, I'm gonna, I want you to hear me say something. This is going to be crazy to hear, I'm sure. There will be no one who is imperfect in heaven. Hallelujah. And you think, well, I can't go. <laughs> oh, but you can. That's the point, man, is that every one of us, if we are in heaven with God, we will be perfect. We have to be, or else we cannot be there. The thing is, we are wrapped, not in our filthy rags, but in the righteousness of Jesus. How can we be called perfect? Because it's not your perfection that you're wearing. You don't have it. But you wear the perfection of the Son of God. That's why it says in verse 24, keep going. And to Jesus, he's the one, right? The mediator of a new covenant. Who needs a mediator? Two parties that are in conflict. It says that he's mediating a new covenant, not one of the law of Sinai that says 
you can't approach. You're far off. It's a mediation of a new covenant that says, come on in for an embrace, brother. It's a new covenant and one that has been perfected because of the perfect work of Jesus. As he comes between holy God and unholy man, ushering in, it says, verse 24, a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a weird part, right? It's like it drops Abel's name in there out of nowhere. What does that even mean? Well, Abel's sacrifice was mentioned back in Hebrews 11, but it's one that we should know pretty well just from the Old Testament. Abel brought a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, but it was because he knew himself to be a sinner. And by faith, he said, God, I'm bringing this to you because I know that I am imperfect. He brought a sacrifice that was one of faith that God would work. You see, Jesus' sacrifice is one of finality that God has worked. It's better. It's better. It's a better word. Abel's was one that could not save. Jesus's was one that saved to the uttermost. What can sinful people like you and me do with the perfect judge of consuming fire? How can God be just and also forgiving? It is the great exchange of the gospel. Christ absorbs and satisfies God's consuming fire of wrath, exchanging his perfect righteousness to us and taking on himself our sin. You think, oh, Caleb, are those just your words? Absolutely not. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't you hear the exchange there? I take your sin. You take my righteousness, the gathering of the perfect ones. You think, man, that's not me. Oh, but it is. Because you're draped in the perfect work and righteousness of Jesus. All the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that those who belong to him would not have to fear falling into his hands. Remember that passage, Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but we need not fear the consuming fire of God's wrath if we are covered by the saving favor of the blood of Christ. And so what's the point? We're going to get to application here in just a moment. What's the point? Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. We never have to approach the mountain of terror again. You never have to approach the mountain of God's terror again. God is not calling you to a mountain that you cannot touch. He's calling you to a consuming fire, not calling you to a consuming fire that you dread, but to his saving favor and his loving embrace. You're hearing the gospel today, folks. And there's no better news than the fact that Jesus has taken on our sins so that we could take on his perfection, his righteousness, because we have an approach problem if we must wear our sin. So, what's our response then? Let's let the rubber hit the road here. I know that, that bogged down perhaps a hair, but what is the response? We got three things, okay? Number one, do not refuse, do not reject. Do not refuse or reject him. It's an, it's an offer, right? Here it is, here's the command, receive it. Do not refuse, do not reject. And this is what it says in verses 25 through 27. I'm going to read them sort of slowly so that you can kind of gather these things as we read. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him. Notice the command there. It's a verb. It's an imperative. Don't do it. Don't refuse him who is speaking. For if they, he's talking to Moses' generation, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, the ones that received the law, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He says, at that time, at Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, quote, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, 
but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, it says, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Here's what I want you to take away from those verses for now. That part of verse 25 that starts, it says, See that you do not refuse him. You know, we mistakenly present the gospel in terms of consideration rather than command. We present the gospel in terms of consideration rather than command. I mean, even at the end of our service, we use that word, the invitation, right? And I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong or anything, but I don't think that it really captures the essence of the invitation. It's not so much of an invitation. Biblically, the gospel is never presented solely as a loose offer to be considered like a birthday invite that you may or may not pick up on. It is a stern ultimatum, something to be either received or rejected. Invitation doesn't quite capture the essence of that. It's a command. You either receive the command or you utterly reject it. Presenting the gospel, in other words, always produces a response. It's not like Facebook where you can leave it pending. It always produces a response. We either accept the call, the command, or we utterly reject him. And this powerful word here, he says, yet once more. So in other words, the day is coming that one more time, God is going to make the earth tremble. And the phrase signals the removal, the destruction of all that man has made, that all that remains will be that which belongs to the Lord. We should not put our hope in this present world for nothing in it will continue. Nothing. Every skyscraper, every economy, currency, every iPhone, every ball field, every social media timeline, every car, truck, every vocation, vacation, school, political party, all of it will be rattled and shaken and it will fall into itself and undone. And all that will remain is the kingdom of God and whether or not we are enrolled in that kingdom. All that will remain is the uncovered truth. Did you only want him as Savior, or did you make him your Lord? One cannot accept him as Savior and yet reject him as Lord. That's why the passage in Luke says, Lord, did we not, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not? He's, and he's saying, depart from me because you never made me your Lord. Don't call me that. You never made me that. Guys, this world is not worth your allegiance. The kingdom of God and its king is. You're hearing this message today, and this is an appending offer. You either accept it today or you reject it. Don't refuse him. The second response is that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and so we must be grateful must be grateful. Man, those words have fallen on me so heavily the last couple of weeks. We receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken and be grateful. Man, and I think the reason it falls so heavily on me now is the more you realize how undeserving you are of something, the more grateful you are for it. Verse 28 says, therefore, let us, remember, look for the lettuce. There it is. Here's your application. Therefore, let us We'll see it again in just a moment. Let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'll pause there for just a moment. You know what brings us together to worship every Lord's Day? You know why we're here today? Gratitude. That's what brings us together, right? It's not information. It's not, some, it's not, just a, it's not a book. Gratitude is what brings us together every Lord's Day. A praise chorus. That's why when we sing our songs, it's so weird that we would be stern and motionless and just bored. We're to be grateful. And our worship is the overflow of a grateful heart. Gratitude is what brings us together every Lord's Day for the gospel and for the unshakable kingdom. All the things of this world, all the money, all the commerce, all the, the politics, all the friends, all the, the buildings and the houses and the entertainment and all of it, it may look permanent for now. It may last beyond your physical existence on this earth, but all of those things will pass away in an instant, and yet his kingdom will stand. They'll fade instantly, and yet the kingdom of God will remain, and his people that make up that kingdom will stand. A heart that understands that the kingdom is an undeserved and precious gift is a heart that will produce a humble gratitude mixed with a holy reverence. You know where gratitude comes from? Understanding. Understanding the gift is where gratitude comes from. You know where it comes from? It comes from a heart that understands just what it is that God has given you. And do the math. The absence of gratitude shows me that you really don't understand what you have in Christ. Gratitude is measurable by the way that one, res- one views a gift. Isn't it? Some of you guys with kids know that to be true. Gratitude is measurable by the way one views a gift. Throw that picture up there, Greg, if you don't mind. Um, this is a, a little guy, me and his name, his name is Benele. And um, Benele was so kind, man. He, he's been through a whole lot in his life. I may share more about this this afternoon, I'm not sure, but um, everybody that's supposed to love him has abandoned him. And he's living with people that are his family, but it's his aunt and, and her children, so his cousins. Um, but he, his mother abandoned them. His father was, was a deadbeat, and uh, he's, he's, he didn't deserve them. And so the aunt stepped in. Oh, and he was living with his grandmother because of that, and then she died. And so uh, then he was displaced, and so he was taken in by his aunt and her family. And it's a great home, a great home now. But it's new to him, and so he's all kinds of out of sorts. And honestly, it broke my heart because he made a connection with me, and then I left. That's hard. Benele uh, and I made a connection, and, and I say that as if we spent hours and hours and hours together. We probably only spent a, an accumulated 30 minutes together um, because so much is happening, and he's one of the older kids, therefore he arrives later than the little guys. You spend a lot of time with the little ones. But Benele was close to my heart because of his story, but, but also because it was so obvious that he latched on to me because he, he, he didn't have somebody, right? He didn't have a figure like that in his life. And honestly, it made me want to just bring him home and let him be my son. But that's not the way it works. Benele did something for me that I'll never forget. Um, the, the next day after he, he and I really made a connection, um, he called me over to his, his aunt and he said, I have something for you. And I was like, what in the world is this kid? I was like, what could he possibly? I mean, they, they don't have much of anything. And he, has, he takes out this, I should have brought the wrapping paper, but it was this blue wrapping paper that um, it, it just looked like a, a, a child wrapped it. And he did. And he wrote in pen on it, he said, to my special friend. And I unwrapped this thing, and I'll show you what was in it. That's what was in it. It's a little dish. After we had, had talked, um, he told his, his aunt, 
that he's living with now, he said, I want to give him something. And she rushed to the market that was only open that day. And um, they, they got this for me. And uh, I'm going to keep it like forever, obviously. But this is so small. I mean, how much would this cost here? I, I don't know. $10, maybe less. I, I really don't know what this would cost here. But this is, is truly priceless to me. Um, because it came from him, and it came from a heart of such gratitude. Um, they live on about $3 a day. Um, so if, if it is worth $10, it's worth three days' worth of, of their living. That's a lot. And so I knew that this meant a lot coming from Benele and from his family. So I, was, I felt bad, like you would, if you received a gift to, from someone that has basically nothing and you have everything. And so I was like, what can I do to give this kid something? And so I talked to one of the, the girls that knows him and has a relationship with him, uh, part of his family, and she was one of our coordinators. And I said, can I just give him something? Because you're not supposed to do that because if you don't have something for all of them, you're not supposed to give it to one of them because they'll fight and it'll just cause problems. You think you're doing a good thing, but you're not. So anyway, I just said, can I just, and her name is Sebe. I said, Sebe, can I just like give him one of my shirts? I was like, it's going to be way too big for him and it's sweaty because I've been in it, but I think that he will like it just to have something. She said, of course. So I went back to the hotel uh, that evening and I told my mother that I was going to do that, who was with me on the trip. And um, she said, I actually have a bunch of stuff that I was going to kind of give to other kids. Why don't you just give him these things? And I was like, wow, man, thank you for once again, mom coming into the clutch, right? And so I gave him just one of those little, you know, drawstring backpack things, and it had two, like, soccer jerseys, cheap, you know, real cheap soccer jerseys, and then my shirt and, like, a Swiss Army knife. And so I gave it to Sebe that night, and then she took it and gave it to him, and I didn't see him receive it or anything. She came up to me the next day, uh, the aunt did, came up to me the next day, and she said, you just don't know what you did to my home last night. She said, we were all just weeping in gratitude and in joy and she said it was, an, it was an unbelievable night. And guys, I didn't think the first thing about that. Because to be honest with you, he gave way more than I did. It was nothing to me. I mean, almost literally nothing to me. And he perceived that I'd given much. In fact, he, he said to his aunt, he said, how did he do this? How did he come up with so much with no time? Does that not just rattle your cage? Guys, we are rich. And because of our riches, we are poor. More on that this afternoon. That's your teaser for that. Here's why I say that. He perceived that I gave more than he did, but he was wrong. My gratitude and his were maybe the same, but he had a misunderstanding of my, my gift. I had a proper understanding of his. Gratitude is measurable by the way one views a gift. And guys, this is not worth 10 bucks to me because I understand the heart that gave it. Why do I say that? Because your gratitude or your apathy can be traced to how much you really value a gift. That's why it's heartbreaking raising kids in America, because they have no gratitude, and therefore they have no love for the giver of the gift, it seems. That's heartbreaking, and again, more on that later. But listen, your gratitude or your apathy for the cross of Christ can be traced to how much you really value the one who gave his life that day. Do you value him? Are you grateful for him? Are you really? Is there gratitude there? For me, it's tears either way. It's tears of appreciation and gratitude, or it's tears of grief that I don't appreciate him as much as I should. Either way, the, my response to the good news that Jesus gave his life for me, it's tears. And sometimes they're tears of joy, and sometimes they're tears of sorrow, because I'm the worst at showing gratitude. 
to the gift that was given for me. And sometimes I think maybe you can empathize with that. This is the point, that you receive mercy and embrace, not a consuming fire. And that should spark us, man. That should stir us. The mercy fuels the gratitude, but finally it fuels the worship. And that's the third thing, that we should offer worship unto God because of what he has done for us. Worship, we should give him. Offer worship. And this is the very last thing. So again, he said, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. There's your let us. But then it says, and thus, let us, verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Approach in the right way, right? For our God is a consuming fire. And I'm going to paraphrase here. The way that you approach him in worship, it matters. The way that you approach that God, it matters. How do we approach him? With reverence and with awe. To the Jews, acceptable worship was all the sacrifices. I'll bring the grain and I'll bring the barley. I'll bring all the things. I'll bring the the goats and the rams. I'll bring all the things. But they were wrong. Those external sacrifices were to be reflective of something internal that was far greater. That's why David said in Psalm 51, again, he has all these things at his disposal. He's the king. He can bring anything in the treasury. But he said in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What's the sacrifice of God? It's right here, man. It's right here. King Josiah, another king of Israel much later, they found the law under his uh, ruler, the, the rulership. The Bible, their Bible was, was gone. It was, it was buried somewhere, and yet a high priest discovered it and found it. He brought it to King Josiah, and Josiah, how he, he heard that they were so far from obedience as he listened to God's word, how far they had fallen. He grieved deeply in his spirit. He tore his clothes, and he wept. And God's response is in 2 Kings twenty two nineteen. It says, because your heart was penitent, stirred, And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. God didn't pour out his wrath that day. He poured out his favor on that man. He didn't desire the mere treasury at his disposal. He wanted Josiah's heart, his affection. Guys, all of your life is worship. All of your life is worship. It may be spent worshiping God, or it may be spent worshiping your appetite and your affection and your flesh and your friends and your job. But at the end of the day, and every moment of every day, you are worshiping. The question, though, is how are you worshiping, and who or what are you worshiping? What kind of worship is your life full of? It's one of the big differences that I noticed when we were in Africa between the Swazis and us. By the way, you'll hear me say Swazi land, Swazi, and Eswatini. It's all interchangeable there. But the difference that I saw between the Swazis and us, and, and there are many Christians there, by the way, and there's a great mission field, which, again, we'll talk about this afternoon. But their life is, is consumed by suffering and lack. They suffer greatly, and they lack greatly, and yet there is fullness of joy. They have so little, and yet they have so much. And when I think about our lives, I don't see suffering and lack. I see comfort and lacking in nothing. And yet I don't see fullness of joy. I see despair. That's a humbling thought. 
You see, they want deliverance from the world that they hate. That's where their faith comes from. They say, I I hate this world. It's full of suffering. It's full of lack. And so they want deliverance, salvation. God come quickly from the world that they hate. But we're different. We need deliverance from the world we love. They, They long for the next thing because of all the things here that they don't have. Reminders of their lack. But man, we have so much comfort. And it's nice to be in this air-conditioned room, isn't it? And it's nice to lay on your soft bed at the end of the day. And it's nice that your food tastes good every meal. In fact, you're displeased when it doesn't taste good. And you say, I send it back. Not so for them. And we're the ones that lose on that exchange. You see, they want deliverance from their sufferings, but we need deliverance from our misplaced affections. They hate the world and cling to the one that will put it away. We love the world and struggle to release it and cling to God instead. And that's part of our stunted worship. We stunt our worship because we don't understand how to place our affection only on God. And I'm not saying that's true across the board because I know you long for glory. I know you long for heaven. But I also know what it's like to be a, a person that lives in the United States of America, and it's nice The comfort is nice. But our worship is stunted as a result of that. And it produces too low a view of God and too high a view of ourselves. It produces too low a view of the kingdom that cannot be shaken and too high a view of the kingdom that we are building for ourselves on earth. We don't want to lose what we have here. But guys, there will come a day when this world will be shaken, the earth and the heavens, And it will all fade away, save what God has established that is eternal. All the idols will be shaken. The desire for sex and pornography and lust, it will be shaken and you will be laid bare. The money will go. It will be shaken away. The success will be proven to be meaningless and vanity and nothing. All the stuff that you've piled into your home and into your, you have more stuff in your attic than most people will have in their entire possession right? And all of it will go away and be nothing. All of your stuff will go. All the acceptance will go. The entertainment, all of it will go. You think the clothes on your back are anything? They're nothing. You think that house will last? It will be ashes. You think that smartphone will remain? It is a machine that will dissolve. You think that job is your identity? Not even close. It's all going to go. And the question then is, Which kingdom am I living for? The one that's going to be shaken and dissolve or the one that will be the only one left standing that will remain for eternity? When these kingdoms crumble, will you feel like like you've lost something or will you feel like you've gained everything? The question is where in your life do you love the kingdom that you've built here too much and the king and his kingdom not enough? Guys, that's a heavy word. Because, I, listen, it may not be true for you. Honestly, I'm just speaking from personal experience. And maybe you're hearing the things I'm saying and saying, that's not really me. And hey, you know what? That's fine. But I can tell you that's true of my life. And so because that's such a heavy, heaping word, I want to end with something that is the opposite. I said a moment ago that the author of Hebrews, his main point in saying this is that you don't come to a mountain of terror. You don't approach a God of terror. But because of what Jesus has done as the mediator of something new, you approach a God that waits to embrace you. There's good news here. You don't have to stand before the consuming fire dressed in your wretchedness. You can stand before him dressed in Christ's righteousness. Except.
don't refuse him. Accept him. And as you've accepted him, come apart in gratitude. I cried so many times over the past two weeks. And the main reason why is because of gratitude. Because my heart is so broken by how little I care. You know what I mean? I mean, do you know what I mean? I don't know. My heart is broken by, by my apathy toward the gift. And then in the few moments that God graciously allows me to truly be thankful, I cry again because I'm overwhelmed by the gift. Today, will you just not stifle him, but allow yourself to be moved by him and to just come apart in gratitude? To come apart in worship. You know, the best place for that fire to be is in your heart. To allow him to heat you and to consume you in a way that produces so much gratitude and worship toward him. But the sad reality is that when you, and maybe it's just the Baptist in you, I don't know, but when you feel that fire swelling up, you think, oh, this is uncomfortable, and you throw a blanket on it and say, no, 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 that's not my style, man. Shame on us. Shame on us. Today, will you just join me in admiring the God, not of terror, but of embrace, of coming apart in gratitude, and as a result, allowing ourselves to be fueled by a heart of worship.